and welcome to the Redefining Human podcast. My name is Wahya Aon, and I am here to engage, educate, and empower the world through conversation to get curious, to feel inspired about the future, to reimagine reality, redesign our identities, and ultimately to redefine what it means to be human. Deep breaths, microphone is on. And we're ready. Let's go. Hello, everybody. My name is Wahia Aon, and welcome back to the Redefining Human podcast. I'm currently overheating right now, so I'm going to try and talk while I remove my sweater. And uh, you might hear a bit of background noise as I'm trying to navigate getting my head through the neck hole. That was actually much smoother than I expected. Sweet. All right. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Redefining Human podcast. For this episode, I've uh, I've recorded it twice. Both times, the recording was about an hour and a half. And the first time, it didn't go super well. I started sort of rambling and I had to work through a lot of complex emotions that I was feeling at the moment. And the second time went so smoothly. The recording was fantastic. I was speaking eloquently and I felt like I was getting into a flow state. And then... I had a save issue, something going on with my hard drive. I wasn't able to save the file. And then in the process of trying to figure out the underlying problem, Audacity, the program that I'm using to record audio right now, just deleted everything. The length of the audio track was still there, but there was absolutely zero content. So I reset my computer, completely disappeared. And I'm just going to read what I wrote down in my journal at the moment, because at first... I was frozen and speechless. So I recorded one and a half hour podcast twice in two days. The second recording was amazing. My voice was in pitch. The thoughts flowed smoothly, felt powerful and articulate. And then the computer showed an error and everything happened. So immediately my thoughts went to trying to recover the file and figuring out what to do. And then when I realized I couldn't do that, just giving up. But it was a really convenient opportunity to start stepping into some of the skills that I've developed over the last year, namely acceptance, presence, breathing, and processing, zooming out when I have an uncomfortable experience and looking at it through the lens of the next 10 years or the past 10 years, where I am right now, what is the significance of this setback? Will it disrupt my plans moving forward, or is it just a temporary inconvenience in this moment? And when I realized it was just a temporary inconvenience, I started looking intentionally for the positives, for the beneficial opportunities that this circumstance prevented me or presented me with, and realized I just had three hours of intensive vocal training. I had three hours to trial and error recording environment and figure out what works best for the next few episodes that will be released in the coming weeks. I recorded those prior to this one and the conditions were not right. I was playing music in my headphones and I was trying to keep up with the music. I was speaking in tune with a beat that none of you will ever hear. And it makes for listening not uncomfortable, but less intimate and authentic. Welcome back to the Redefining Human podcast. It's been a long time since we last spoke. 
The last episodes I released were on March 30th of 2021, and now it is May 20th, 2022. My birthday was yesterday, and this is the thing that I want to touch on before we get into the substance of this episode. This whole idea of celebration and what it really means to me, to to you, to us as a species, humanity seems very caught up in this process of celebrating, oftentimes without much reason. And holidays are something that have always been a bit strange for me. This annual event where, at least on a national level, the majority of human beings that subscribe to the practice dress up and go knock on doors for candy, or sit on a couch in front of a tree that was cut down and dragged indoors, opening up boxes and pulling out gifts that vast majority of people probably don't need and or want. Valentine's Day, where we give out cards and hearts. In school, I remember getting a bucket of cards and filling them out to give to each of my classmates. And if one person was forgotten, or if there was one person in the class that few people liked and ended up getting fewer cards, that was an issue. Cards on Valentine's Day were almost like like Pokemon cards. They were a status symbol. And the people that, the children that grew up in families that had a, a large amount of money to throw around, at least on like cards for Valentine's Day, they would have these elaborate decorated cards. And I would have these handmade cards that I'd put a lot of energy and time into. And it it was just so strange to see the disparity, this expression of social difference in the context of giving. There's this inherent expectation baked into holidays, baked into tradition, especially around birthdays that I have not quite come to terms with. This idea that If you're alone on your birthday, if you're working, if you're engaging in something that doesn't equal lots of people showing up and helping you to celebrate the fact that you're alive, getting physical objects, material exchange to represent appreciation and gratitude, and being congratulated on the fact that you have managed to survive against all odds one more rotation around the sun. It's always been very strange. And so the last few years, I've started coming to terms with the idea of not celebrating my birthday at all, not putting any energy or effort into it whatsoever, and instead shifting my perspective of the moments that I'm alive, focusing on being as intentional and present as possible, focusing on identifying who I am and living a life that I can be proud of in every moment moving forward so that I can build momentum and live a legacy. It's so important that we come to this realization. You don't have to avoid celebrating your birthday. I honestly don't care if you do or don't. But I do care that you come to the recognition that every moment moving forward is not guaranteed. There's no cosmic contract. There's no deity that has determined or declared whether or not you will continue to exist. Your your next breath, your next inhale and exhale is not guaranteed. And the world does not owe you anything in terms of ensuring that you continue to exist. And this can lead to an existential crisis for many people and did for me 
for quite some time until I came to terms with the fact that all that really means is there's a necessity to live life intentionally. And that requires so many things. But that is transitioning perfectly into why I am here talking to you today and will continue to do so over the coming weeks. Welcome to the Redefining Human podcast, where my intention is to set an example, to have conversations and use the power of spoken word, the exchange of information, articulation of perspective and idea in order to provide a framework and reference point to create a safe space, at least on a cognitive level, to ask deeper questions and be patient, waiting for the answers to show up. Why are we here? What is our role on this planet? What is our goal as a species? How do we aim to treat each other and ourselves Are we living our lives authentically with purpose, with function? Are we motivated by a desire to satiate our egos, to temporarily resolve our internal struggles? Are we trying to distract ourselves from these necessary reflections that we should all be engaging in on a daily, if not on a moment-by-moment basis? The vast majority of human beings as I have observed, live a cycle, at least in North America. But I imagine this is biology, this is baked into the foundation of humanity. We pursue pleasure, and we run away from pain. There's this spectrum that we exist on, which is really just a loop that moves infinitely, and in extremes, pain and pleasure merge and transition into each other. But looking at this as a simple spectrum, pleasure on the left, pain on the right, let's simplify things and make them more subjective. At a fundamental level, we are motivated by our biology and chemical production within our bodies, musculature, and our genetic lineage, behaviorally developed tendencies to run away from pain, and to seek pleasure. And this practice, now that we live in a world where all of our basic needs are met for the most part, it's very easy as a human being to get food, to get water, to have shelter, relatively speaking. We don't have to worry about these things as much as we used to, at least in most cases in the developed world. And as a consequence, We consume excessively. We spend so much of our time on Netflix. We exchange our attention and energy, two of the most vital currencies of any organism, for temporary entertainment. We dive into the stories, fictional narratives, produced and created by people we'll never meet in conditions that are completely unrealistic. We absorb ourselves into the storyline that we watch on screens and then try and replicate and feel terrible because we can't meet these unrealistic standards in in our actual lives. There is this phenomena, this epidemic 
of distraction and disassociation with the world and in a time where we are simultaneously living in the most incredible era in human history where the greatest potential is just beyond our fingertips. We're also the most distracted, disillusioned, disassociated, disconnected, isolated, depressive society in history. On a global scale, it's insane to see the paradoxical presence of people who are obese and overweight and have health issues as a consequence. Increased heart risk factors, increased metabolic disease, increased immobility, increased joint issues, increased presence of diabetes and other life-threatening conditions. And a couple thousand kilometers away, or sometimes a few blocks, there are children and individuals sleeping on the street having to fight for extra calories. It's incredible to witness, and it's devastating. And my goal with this podcast is to start having uncomfortable conversations, to expand the collective Overton window, to empower individuals to start taking things a little more slowly, asking questions a little more deeply, waiting for the answers a little more patiently, and then engaging with the world a little more passionately. And if we pursue this process of 1% growth and improvement daily, referencing where we were in the moment that we started, exponential progress can be achieved, where momentum compounds daily, and 10 years down the road, we could completely reconfigure the human condition. I'm here to start engaging in that process. I'm here to start expressing my ideas and perspectives. I'm here to start sharing my opinions and encouraging other people to do the same. The format that I want to pursue with this podcast is two ways. And it might change over time. I might decide to do mini-series on education, but I don't think that this space is the perfect medium for that. So the two formats that I'm looking at leaning into the most over the next few months are singular, monologous podcast episodes. I don't know if I pronounced that word right. Monologous? Monologous? Anyways, where it's just me breaking down conversations and topics, sharing perspective, synthesizing in real time, because this is what I do. I'm not reading a script right now. I'm talking directly to you. I'm using my body to get engaged. I am taking ideas and perspectives, putting them out into the physical space in front of me, and then merging them and moving forward. I synthesize information from a vast array of, for the most part, disparate subjects and topics. I connect dots, bring them together, create webs and direct them, funnel and channel, distill them into ideas, topics, sometimes powerful, sometimes completely irrelevant. And it's an interesting skill that I've focused on propagating over time because it, it is necessary that for the work that I'm trying to do outside of this podcast, I develop the capacities for lateral and spiral thinking, for creative problem solving, engaging with the world through a slightly different lens than the tendency of binary, black and white, fear-based thinking. 
that we see so often in the world around us. So that is one of the formats. And the other is bringing on professionals within spaces with scientific backgrounds and certification, qualification in certain fields who can talk a little more in depth and a little more specifically about the nuance and background, the foundations of different systems and circumstances and studies and cultures. My focus with the Redefining Human podcast is to paint a picture of the cosmos, the human experience, to identify the aspects of being human that are relevant, that we've developed throughout history, that are appropriate, that can allow us to move forward, to identify the ones that no longer suit or serve us, and to choose to intentionally recycle that content to relieve the structure of its energy, to then take that energy and in that new space that has been created, invest it in the development of new skills, abilities, identities, opportunities, so that we can realize our dreams. In that process, it will become necessary that we come to terms with the past and settle into the present moment. The only time we should be referencing the past is to learn from it, to appreciate its beauty, or to allow it to inform our present actions. The only time we should be looking into the future is to dream to imagine, to feel inspired and engaged, to develop clarity, to identify off in the distance a landmark that we're looking to move toward. And then we need to come back into the present moment and move forward with conviction, following that internal compass, the internal dialogue, the wisdom that we choose to intentionally generate in every moment and to take action accordingly so that we can start taking incremental steps toward that eventual destination. It is incredible that so many human beings are walking around this world daily not recognizing who or what they really are. Let's take a step back for a moment and look at things through the lens of biology and neuroscience. Your body is a complex of cells. Those cells have come together to form organs. There are an insane number of bacteria and microbes existing on and within your body. You're this culmination of countless individual life forms, cells and bacteria and microbes and viruses all formed together to create this incredibly efficient body that is moving around energy through muscles and tissue and fat and nerve cells and bones, all of these complex systems that are fundamentally made of the same materials with different shape and different density, all cooperating together in this incredible matrix that is you, your biology. Your heart beats and pumps blood around your body at rapid speed. Your veins and arteries carry that blood which contains nutrients, chemicals, and water. It is actively fueling your cells which are recovering and repairing, dying, and giving birth to new potential every single second. Your body is processing incredible amounts of data at a rapid speed through the brain, bringing in sensory information through the nervous system, through your senses, sight, taste, touch, smell, hearing. You're interpreting that information and then reacting, walking through the world and making decisions based on an incredible amount of information 
that without even realizing it, you are interpreting, integrating, identifying, and then reacting to. The human brain is the most complex structure in the known universe. Sit with that for a moment. Granted, we haven't observed much of the universe, but we can see things in pretty great detail. And this 13.6 billion year old structure that has been expanding exponentially, that contains trillions of galaxies, each containing hundreds of billions to trillions of stars, each having planets and other bodies orbiting around them, each potentially containing life. Out of everything that we have observed in the known universe, the human brain is the most complex structure. It's the most advanced chemical production factory that we know of. It is capable of so much. And so many human beings are walking around in the world not being willing to ask who am I and why am I here because that's really fucking scary and school doesn't teach us how. Most of our parents never ask those questions, so why would they tell us how to ourselves? Consuming, believing that there are forces outside of our control that dictate the direction that our lives head in, that some people are born in positions of opportunity and other people, well, they just have to suck it up and live with the shit that they were given at birth. That we are somehow governed and dictated by these laws of fate that in this concrete and irreversible pressure direct how we develop the experiences that we have, the social environments that we get exposure to, and overall the lives that we lead. Science has proven definitively that the human brain is inherently plastic. The more energy and intention you put into a thought, you can actively rewire your mind. It takes time, it takes practice, it takes actively choosing to believe that you're capable of doing it. But overall, if you set a period of time aside, two months to focus on developing a skill, to focus on letting go of limiting beliefs and narratives, to focus on changing the way that you identify with the world, shifting your perception, your perspective, you can become a completely different person in a very short period of time. And as you start taking action, that action compounds and you can experience this incredible exponential growth in your personal development, skill realization and development, the acquisition of opportunity, pursuit of a new body, a new mind, a new smile, a new social group, a new job, a completely different life. You can achieve that with enough focus and repetition. The fact that we can walk around this world and see so many problems and feel completely incapable of dealing with them, it's understandable, yes. Look at the conversations the vast majority of people are having. We lie to ourselves in order to attempt to accept and convince ourselves that we cannot realize our dreams. Well, that's fucking depressing. And we lie to each other out of the fear of being left behind. There's a classic example that I like to use as an analogy for society and for ourselves. A fisherman can leave crabs in a bucket for an entire day without worrying about any of them escaping. Because as soon as one crab begins to try and crawl out of the bucket, the others reach up almost unconsciously, grab their leg and pull them back down. We like to stay in the environments that are familiar. Fear is uncomfortable. Regret is uncomfortable. 
We convince ourselves that our identities are concrete. And sometimes we don't even have exposure to the reinforcement necessary, the reference points to allow us to recognize fucking anything is possible. In the words of Tom Bilyeu, human potential is limitless. And if I can add on to that, the only limitations in life are the ones that you create for yourself and accept from other people. Why are you limiting yourself? And if you aren't, why are you allowing other people to? We cannot force other people to change, but we can inspire them to recognize they are capable of changing themselves. Change is scary. It's terrifying. But I have a difficult truth to share with you. Change is the only universal constant. Change is the only guarantee. And back to what I was mentioning beforehand, there is no guarantee that you get to live into the next moments. So choose to live fully. So it's been a while since we last spoke. And I am really excited to catch you up on things. The last recording, the last podcast episode that I released was in March of 2021, March 30th. And I remember in that episode saying I was going to bring a couple of things with me when I moved to Vancouver, BC, from Nelson. And uh, one of those things was the podcast. And I was going to focus on releasing episodes daily and consistently, and that did not happen. So quick, I went to Vancouver, moved there. Very incredible, empowering experience, stepping out of my shell. Took a road trip down to Vancouver with some friends, and we went to check out the place that I was going to be living in, which I found 36 hours before leaving Nelson, BC. And then I attended my first Extinction Rebellion strike and action in Vancouver, which was really cool, really empowering. First time that I saw people get arrested, which was really life-changing. That was honestly paradigm shifting to see people actively engaging in civil disobedience with police there, choosing to say no to what the cops were saying, choosing to hold their ground and moving forward with actions anyways, and then being arrested as a consequence and just realizing like the, the impact of being arrested is not as significant as most people think, depending on the conditions. So that happened. And then I was just struggling in Vancouver for a while. I told myself daily that I was going to record episodes for the podcast, and I spent around 120 hours trying to write a script for an episode that will be released in the future, but honestly just needs some time to sit and to, I don't know, ferment. <laughs> it was not going well. I recorded, re-recorded, rewrote the episode so many times that it got to the point where every time I stood up and looked at the microphone or thought about sitting down in front of my computer and speaking, I just had anxiety. I felt regret and shame and guilt and frustration. It did not go well. So I distracted myself instead. I told people and myself daily that I was developing a podcast, that I was creating content when in reality I was avoiding it with every breath I took. Then I had the opportunity to go to Fairy Creek, the Ferry Creek Blockade, which is now the longest running and biggest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history on Vancouver Island, focused initially on preventing the logging of the old growth trees, thousand year old trees in this primordial untouched valley ecosystem on the southern aspect of uh, Vancouver Island, just near Port Renfrew. My friend was going along with a few other friends and they reached out and said, hey, if you want to come down, this is your opportunity to come. And I was terrified. I've, I'd been thinking about it for a while up until then. And I was like, oh, but if I go, I'm not going to be able to do the podcast. And then I realized I'm not doing the podcast anyways. So 
I'm just going to go. And the experience that I had driving up to Ferry Creek and going up the road in TL46 and seeing intake in June with half a dozen people present that came out, they stopped the car, they gave us these sheets to read that informed us in five pages on the history of the Pachadat and Didida peoples, the, the presence of Bill Jones as the indigenous representative of the Pachadat people, and the rules and regulations and expectations of the blockade. It was, it was an astounding experience to go from just essentially spinning in circles, not knowing what to do, to then end up at Ferry Creek while it was still kind of in its infancy, when HQ had just been settled and stabilized, and to pass through intake to see all of the people in this like Mad Max crossed with steampunk, crossed with, ah, I don't even, I don't even know, just this, this incredible community of people that all looked so cool and so badass in the woods, protecting an ancient ecosystem. I was like, holy shit, this feels like a movie. It felt like I was walking onto a movie set when I showed up there. Driving up the main road and passing through Bear's Mouth, which was this beautiful castle-like structure that was eventually destroyed by an excavator. But when we first saw it, we were like, wow, like this is real. People are actually creating this physical infrastructure with cement and wood and big nails and incredible to, to, to see. And then I went through an orientation process and over the course of the next four days, I fell in love. And it feels cheesy to say that, but I met this incredible woman who has changed so much in my life and I am so grateful for her. Um, if you're listening to this, you know exactly who you are. I was planning to stay for a couple days at Ferry Creek and I ended up staying for two weeks. And then toward the end of the two weeks, this, this girl had to go back home. So we went back to Vancouver together and spent a couple days there. She left and I went back to Ferry Creek about a week later. And I kept going back and forth to this place, drawn back in by the community and the feel and just the sense that I was part of something big. And at the same time, things were feeling kind of strange. Like there, there was this incredible community feel and then there was a lot of tension because police engagement and arrests were escalating. In the first few days that I was there, we were around, I think, like 130 arrests. And now the arrest total is well over 1,200. As things started picking up pace, there was this internal tension building and growing between different, almost factions within the Ferry Creek blockade. There were people who showed up to protect the trees, and then there were people who showed up for indigenous sovereignty, people who showed up to support BIPOC, queer, transgender peoples. And in this strange unfolding of social dynamics that I now recognize exist in almost all settings, people started to feel offended, personally attacked, and misinterpreting or intentionally choosing to hurt others resulted in this boiling up of frustration and miscommunication within the blockade. Over this period of time, I wasn't feeling super empowered. I was new to the space. I didn't want to engage with it much. And if you want to hear more about my experience there and breaking down the emotional aspects of it, I recommend listening to a podcast that I did with uh, Yael Feiner, who has interviewed many people from Ferry Creek, but you can find it on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. I felt very strange and didn't feel super empowered to participate in developments at Ferry Creek. And this continued for a while until later on in the summer, I decided to spend a little more time there and stayed for a period of about two weeks. 
And in that period of time, I was part of this, this action that was called Blob. And in that experience, my brother was present and a few other people that I knew from home were there. And over the course of four hours, we were sitting and huddling and just holding on to each other on this logging road. Got there at around five in the morning and the arrests finished at about 1130. One by one, people were pulled out of this group of around 60 or 70 people arrested, dragged across the ground, and put into police wagons. And in this day, I think there were around 78 arrests total, which is the record in of, of any day at Ferry Creek. It was just like, just crazy to, to witness that and experience. Before that happened, there was a lot of tension leading up to the initial raid at Ferry Creek. And when the raid finally occurred and police presence was like very, very dominant, the emotional dam just broke within within people at Ferry Creek. People started to feel even more offended and attacked. Everybody was on high anxiety, low sleep, terrible combination. And it resulted in a lot of miscommunication and internal dispute and conflict. And ultimately, that is what I will say led to the dissolution of the blockade. Over this period of time, I met this girl that I was sitting with in, in this, this huddle this group. And we ended up holding on to each other for quite some time and then didn't speak for a while after. And I ended up going back home for a couple of, I would say probably a week and a half and had a brief discussion with her before leaving. I went back home. I was feeling super disempowered. And every time I was going back and forth from Ferry Creek, there was a lot of conversation around like respect and transphobia and xenophobia and racism and colonial mindset and all of these things. And I wasn't feeling super present or connected with myself. And so I would go back home and I would sit down with my female roommates. I was living with three at the time. And I would just have conversations with them about like, what does it mean to be a male, to be a man within an environment of women and come off as respectful and communicate and and be human and show just a, a default level of, of respect and camaraderie. Like, how does a man show up in this world and be respectful? And I, I grew up in a household with predominantly women. And I have two sisters and my mom ran the household and provided such an incredible foundational example for all of us in terms of just strength of character and personal resolve and commitment to love and compassion. And so, like, I felt like I had a pretty solid understanding, but I would ask these questions being afraid. And, like, if I show affection or, like, attraction towards somebody, is it going to come off... Is it going to come off like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to infringe upon their basic rights? And I just started feeling so much self-doubt as a male, as a white male in this space, that I could not speak up when things were happening that I felt were not right and needed to be questioned. An important point to make in this moment is that while I was at Ferry Creek, there was a significant amount of anger and fear and rage, specifically within the non binary identifying um, non-heterosexual white male population. And there was also a significant amount of force and dominance and aggression and frustration and just total ignorance from the white male population at Ferry Creek. Sitting back and observing what was happening, interactions between people and the anger and the frustration when people, regardless of skin color, regardless of gender and identification, were standing up and spreading fear and hatred and anger, I felt in this moment, because I'd been surrounded by this environment, just 
enriched by this atmosphere, regardless of whether or not I wanted to be, I felt so insecure in my own well-being, my understanding of reality, and felt like I did not have the right, the capacity, the understanding, the opportunity to speak up, to express myself, and to say, this is wrong. To the this black person who is actively criticizing and invoking hatred toward white people that have not shown any indication or sign of racism, intolerance, oppression, ignorance. Maybe they're just unfamiliar with this ecosystem, this environment, navigating and behaving around people who identify as completely different than anything they're used to. I felt like I had no right to speak up, to express myself. And in the context of, of conversation with women specifically, I was so unused to engaging and interacting with people intimately and on a physical level. The relationship that I developed a few months prior at Ferry Creek in June had ended very, very quickly, and this person had gone back to Montreal. And the consequence of that was I didn't have the opportunity to build physical intimacy. It had been such a long time that I had gone with without having that deep physical connection with somebody else, and I just had no idea how to approach that aspect of life, let alone just speaking up, expressing myself, and expressing who I was. I felt very, very lost in my identity. This is post-recording Wahia, by the way. I just had to step in and add on bits and pieces so that this conversation wasn't so nuanced. Let's get back to the recording. And then came back to Vancouver and ended up communicating with and talking to this this girl, incredible human being. And once again, if you're listening to this podcast, you know who you are. We ended up meeting up and she came over to my place and we made food and and talked for a long time. And she ended up staying the night and we had sex and connected at a super deep level. And I realized in that moment that I, I had intentionally chosen in 2019 when I stepped out of the protest culture and activist movement, when I chose to take a step back and start questioning things, I stepped out of a relationship at the same time and chose essentially to become celibate for however long it took for me to find myself and figure out who I was. And in this interaction with, with this human, the degree of clarity that I got from it was astonishing. The sense of returning back into my body and recognizing who I am, realizing that I have this just power within me that I had been ignoring for such a long time. It's like almost like I had stepped into this shell of just anxiety and self-doubt and guilt and shame and surrounding myself with an environment that was actively saying because of who you are, because of how you look, not directly, but this was the narrative, you should feel anxiety and guilt and shame because look at what your people have done to ours. Look at the colonial history. Even though my, my family members immigrated from Norway and the other side of the family is Czechoslovakian and indigenous, Cherokee, I was actively feeling guilt and shame because these so many people were saying it is because of European colonizers and settlers, this colonialist perspective and mindset, which, yeah, it's a thing. But this blind, broad sweeping accusation, so many people that showed up to the blockade with incredible intention were chased away and bullied out of the movement simply because of how they looked. And it was so 
weird and confusing to experience and witness. And it was so devastating to watch. Like, we're all there for the same reason. We might not be talking about it, but we all want sovereignty. We all want equity. We all want social justice. We all want inclusion and active participation, active equal distribution of opportunity. We all want the trees to be protected, for the ecosystems to be resilient, to be sustained, to be taken care of, to be respected. And yet, there was so much internal conflict and just chaos. And so, in this interaction with this, with this person, this lovely woman, I came back into myself. That was not a play on words, I promise. At least, yeah, I don't even know how that would be possible physically. Please don't send me an email or a message explaining the details. I do not want to know. <laughs> I settled into my body and remembered, I have been here for 24 years. I have experienced so much. I carry wisdom inside of me and this understanding that needs to be expressed when I see injustice, regardless of who the accuser and the accused are, it is my responsibility to step in and shape perspective, to bring people back out, to show them, first of all, what is possible, and second, why we need to create safe peaceful environments and what that truly means. So I went back to the blockade and engaged fully, got back into active participation, involved myself in organization and structure, and I started engaging with that fear of standing up for myself and saying no. But over the course of time that I was there, things still started dissolving. And I realized after a short period, like the momentum that was generated in the development of this movement, because thousands of people injected their ideas and their philosophies, their perspective and personality into the structure that was Fairy Creek. It was moving at a pace that one person was simply incapable of changing, especially when there were so many people that were actively focused on reconfiguring what existed. And so, um, after I had this just lovely opportunity to connect with this wonderful woman, I decided to move to the island to get closer to Fairy Creek. I had been traveling back and forth, and the majority of my time was either spent at Fairy Creek, traveling to or from Fairy Creek, or recovering and resting from being there. I was paying $900 a month in rent in Vancouver. I was paying bills that were only relevant to my locality and decided this doesn't make any sense. I'm just going to move to the island. So I packed up all of my stuff into a U-Haul and I put all of my stuff in storage in Victoria and I went and essentially just lived at Fairy Creek for about a month. And this was in September. So for the entire duration of September from around the 14th to the end of the month, I lived at Fairy Creek. Then I ended up taking a week or so off and went back and I was there again for about three weeks straight. This is future post-recording Wahia again, just adding on some bits and pieces so the breadcrumb trail isn't too difficult to follow. I went to Fairy Creek in June, around June 9th of 2021, and I left Fairy Creek forever around October 17th or 18th of 2021. 
In that period of time, I had a lot of different encounters and experiences that I'll dive deeper in the future if people want to break down concepts, conversations. I'm going to have discussions and bring people on from the realm of civil disobedience just to express the perspective of why it's necessary and why it is such a force for change and also why it threatens humanity so much, going over the history, etc. While I was at Fairy Creek, I built a relationship in the first two weeks that I was there with this incredible woman who, as I said, eventually had to go back home. So when she did, our relationship sort of dissolved and ended up coming back when she returned, but it never developed fully uh, in the way that I hoped it would, primarily because when we first started uh, connecting, I was super insecure and very uncertain of where I wanted to go with uh, with a relationship with somebody. I had a lot of deep questions that hadn't yet been answered, and I hadn't yet had the opportunity to really explore and question what does a relationship with somebody else mean to me. A few months later, I had the opportunity to connect deeply with this other individual that I met at the blockade, and she changed my life and perspective completely. As I just mentioned, I felt like I was stepping back into my power. I was connecting with my body in a way that I hadn't in such a long time. And just the intellectual conversation that we had leading up to and after that experience was breathtaking, life-changing. And I hope that you listening to this, that you have the opportunity to experience human connection to that degree because it is absolutely astounding when you have this sort of existential gasp of air and realize that you haven't been breathing fully for a while. When your lungs expand and you get that stretch, it changes everything. Then I went back to Fairy Creek and a few weeks later I met another incredible individual, somebody that I've been interacting with for a while and we ended up connecting as well. And this also just created a total shift and reorientation of my perspective, what it means to be with somebody, what it means to be with myself, what it means to be myself, who am I, how am I showing up in this world? And each of these three incredible women were so different and so complex. And they each taught me so much in my encounters and experiences with them. And later on in the summer, toward the end of my time at Fairy Creek, I started exploring the option of an open relationship. Not really an open relationship, but being with two people simultaneously. And this is probably making a lot of people very uncomfortable. And it would have made me super uncomfortable as well. It's uncomfortable to talk about it. Um, if I hadn't had the experience going through these moments of just trying to navigate communication with two people at once, trying to build trust and respect and appreciation and uh, connection with two completely different individuals and ensure that the, the communication channel th flows smoothly was just a, a complete perspective reorientation. And leading up to that point, I felt like I had almost sort of devolved into this isolated, condensed shell of myself when connecting with other people. I had lost my ability to sit and stand confidently and express myself, to be playful and to flirt, to connect with other people on multiple levels other than just saying, these are my ideas, opinions, perspectives, please don't attack me for sharing them, goodbye, see you later, or maybe never. 
In the future, I will bring on many people to have discussions about relationships. And I didn't really feel like this was a topic that was valuable or valid a few years or months ago. But now that I have gone through this process of connecting with people at a different level and in different ways, not approaching a conversation or connection or relationship from the classic, just boxed in dynamic that is so often shoved into people's vocabulary and toolkit without realizing there are different shapes, forms, sizes, and dimensions to the potential development of relationships, I think it's so critically important for us to recognize there are different ways to be with people. There are different approaches, and every decision you choose in structuring, developing, designing a relationship with somebody as long as it isn't reinforced by inspiration and possibility, as long as you are not coming to the encounter, choosing to connect with somebody in order to collaborate, to learn, to grow, to flourish, the probability is very high that you're coming into the relationship out of a desire to control, to be safe, to protect yourself and your identity, and to use the other person as a shield in this process of evolution, growth, development. And that is inherently self-limiting. So I'll have deeper discussions about that in the future. And if I made you uncomfortable with this short sharing session, fantastic. That's awesome. Uh, Grandma, this is for you specifically. I know you're listening to this. Um, we can talk about it later. Anyways, let's get back into the episode. Thank you. Toward the end, there was such a massive array of tumultuous emotions and experiences that I that I witnessed, that I encountered and experienced myself, where the injunction was removed by Justice Thompson, the injunction being the document stating that if people were actively preventing access to the logging road, they could be arrested, allowing the RCMP to come in force. Then two weeks later, it was reinstated temporarily. An interim injunction was put into place, which is essentially the equivalent of saying, we're going to start the car until we decide whether or not to start the car again. So the previous injunction, all of the conditions were in place. People were actively being arrested while the decision was being made whether or not the injunction should be in place and people should be arrested. Completely fucking ludicrous. And after it was implemented, re-implemented, on the first day of police enforcement back at Ferry Creek, I participated in a breakfast creation in the morning. After three days of sleeping three or four hours per night and like two weeks of just crazy caloric expenditure and burning tons of social interactions, which I am not adapted to inherently as a human being. I love privacy and I am a massive introvert, regardless of how it might seem if you've seen me speak publicly or if you're listening to this podcast right now. 90% of my time, I prefer to spend alone and in silence or listening to audiobooks and expanding my personal understanding of the world. But 95% of my time at Fairy Creek was spent in really intense conditions and 5% was spent sleeping. So morning happens, we get a call on the radio saying there are 18 and then an additional like seven or eight police vehicles and that they were going to be arriving at around eight o'clock. Bonjour, this is Post Recording Wahi again. I just want to intervene here quickly because we're about to transition potentially traumatic degrees of decibel levels. I recorded the first section of this podcast episode at around 4 p.m. Um, and my voice was starting to get pretty tired after talking so much. And then I recorded the second episode about 45 minutes after waking up the next day. So I just want to intervene here 
give you guys a quick warning, and this will also hopefully explain why so many of my podcast episodes are going to sound differently over the course of this series, this season, whatever I decide to call it. So keep that in mind. Let's get back into the episode. <laughs> so 7.45 and then 7.50, 7.55, police vehicles start rolling in, and on cue, all plans just go out the window. We had no idea what to expect and what the protocol or the action of the police was going to be when they arrived, and they decided that they were going to immediately come up to the kitchen and say, we're setting up the new front line here. Anything past this piece of tape has to move within the next 10 to 15 minutes. We're going to start the timer now. You guys have to start moving shit right now. If you don't, everybody in this area is going to be arrested. Without any strategy or action plan, um, other than uh, activities and hard blocks that had been set up higher up the mountain, people just start freaking out, which is completely expected. Under pressure, if you don't have a plan, you will collapse into the default behavior that you have trained up until that point. And when you have a large group of around 40 or 50 people all of them exhausted, stressed out, under severe pressure, many of them juggling this deep consideration and, and question of whether or not they're willing to face the potential legal ramifications of being arrested by the RCMP, the most legitimized and publicly recognized police force within Canada. As a result, chaos ensues, people start pulling things apart and dragging totes, these bins with 60 to 80 pounds of dried food off into the woods, trying to carry incredible amounts of weight and ridiculous items, just grabbing bins and sweeping their arm across the, the kitchen counters that we had built, putting miscellaneous assortments of raw food, dry food, tools, knives, equipment, batteries, all of these things into these barrels and buckets that over the course of the blockade history had only proven to become a nuisance because who wants to sort through a bunch of random shit inside of a bin when it's been rained on and there are two feet of water drowning everything in it? As this starts happening, people are running by and grabbing French toast and trying to grab food, literally just reaching out and grabbing a couple pieces with their hands and trying to shove them in their mouths as they're dragging God knows what in the direction that they think will be most helpful. Many people are yelling at each other and saying, we need to move, we need to move, why aren't you moving faster, come on, no, we need to do it this way, we need to do it that way, and I'm sitting there watching as a close friend comes up and grabs a bin of chickpeas and black beans and starts dragging them. And she is moving this bin with a lot of conviction. And at the same time, it looks like she's about to start crying. She's dragging the bin and saying, we need to set this up in the woods. We need to make a cache so that we can come back to this later on so we have food. And I'm, I'm looking at her like, do you have a pressure cooker? Are you going to soak those for 24, 36 hours before cooking them for an hour and a half? Will you have fuel? Will you have a stove? We are on the front line now. This is where enforcement is going to be the heaviest. The last thing that we need is dried chickpeas. When we're in the woods without the resources necessary to actually prepare them, this makes no sense. And I took a step back. And I was so tired. 
people are shouting at me to help to move things and I'm looking at the activity around me and it is literally like watching the definition of insanity play out before my eyes. And I start recognizing, really internalizing and accepting what I stated before. With so many people having contributed to the blockade, well over 10,000 people over the previous months, all of them committing energy and intention and focus toward development in so many different areas all across the mountain, it had culminated in this massive wave of momentum carried by exhausted individuals with completely different perspectives and motivations, and I was exhausted and my energy was not going to change anything. No matter how hard I tried, I was not going to be able to change anything unless I was willing to sacrifice my own well-being. And in that moment, I had to take a step back and I started asking myself some pretty deep questions as mayhem is unfolding around me, as police officers are shouting through megaphones and preparing to push forward, read us the injunction and start arresting people. These people are frantically packing up their personal belongings and trying to find lost items that had been put into the kitchen the night before. These people are taking crowbars and hammers and pulling apart the kitchen, taking knives and cutting down cables and ropes strung throughout the trees, taking down the tarps and just getting dumped on with water that had collected in pools. I started asking myself, on the scale that I've been considering for the last few years, looking at this through the filter of the Kardashev scale, the probability of humanity becoming a type one civilization, the speech that I did at the Langham in Caslow in 2019 on the Great Filter and beyond, how humanity in this moment in time is creating its own Great Filter scenario, where we have created the conditions necessary to encourage, to fuel self-transcendence and evolution, where we are putting ourselves through this filtration process where if we are unwilling to let go of the limiting beliefs, behaviors, perspectives, ideologies, and identities that have held us restricted and constrained for so long, we will go out with a whimper and we will not be remembered in the history of the cosmos. I had a choice to make. Am I willing to sacrifice my well-being, my psychological and physiological stability to continue trying to change something that is so adamant, so resistant to change? And I realized the answer was no. I walked around and I started packing up my stuff and I was sort of in a daze. A, a, a haze, I guess, almost distant. Like I was watching myself watching the blockades and I went over to my tent and started packing things up and took a while. Police officers were walking by and telling me that I had three minutes to pack up or I'd be under arrest and I could not care less. I just took my time. I made sure that things were organized so that when I opened my backpack later on, it wouldn't be chaotic and I wouldn't overly stress myself. It was a meditative experience to roll up my jacket, to roll up my sleeping bag, to layer everything into my backpack in a way that made sense. 
And some of my brother's items were in my tent. He was currently uh, up on the mountain and I had absolutely no idea where he was. And so with his things, I put them into what I thought was going to be a safe space and hoped that he'd be able to find them when he arrived again. My brother had been at the blockade for about two and a half months straight. He showed up in August, the beginning of August, and left toward the middle to end of October. And in the first few weeks that he was there, some really intense stuff happened. You may have seen the video of the tripods, the dual tripods. This was released sometime in August that were strapped to each other. And the police officers thought it would be a great idea to extract these two individuals from the tripods, both well over 13 feet in the air. They thought it would be a good idea to cut one foot lengths off of the tripod that my brother was in at a time and catch the tripod as it fell to the ground. And obviously that's not going to work. If you have something that is standing on three legs and you're cutting those legs off in one foot segments and trying to catch it as it falls, most people would have the common sense to realize that is not going to end well. And on the day that my brother fell from the tripod, the video has circulated online and has gone viral and brought a lot of attention to Ferry Creek. My brother had an interview with the narwhal and chose not to pursue further action because of the just internal stress he was feeling. As a 16-year-old, it's pretty difficult to process all of the things that happened at Ferry Creek. And as he is sitting in this tripod, as I'm watching from a distance, the police have tried to push us back around the corner so we can't see what's going on, and we end up fighting against it and saying, you are actively opposing the orders, the court orders set by Justice Thompson, stating that the RCMP have been using illegal tactics constantly in this process of illegal arrest and enforcement. Do you not understand why we are here? Do you not realize the importance, the necessity of intact ecosystems? This, this space of incredible biodiversity that is critical to the continuation of life on Earth, if it gets cut down, it's not growing back. We have the capacity to develop technology to produce products of equal value as the old growth trees, it took 2,000 plus years for these trees to grow. It took 10,000 plus years since the end of the last ice age for this ecosystem to develop into the sanctum sanctorum that it is today. This incredible space, this haven for life. If you destroy it, if you allow this company to destroy it for a few million dollars in profit, the consequences are unimaginable. So, we took out the injunction and somebody from the blockade read it out and the, the officer in charge on that day paused and then admitted that he hadn't actually read the, uh, the court order. And so, he said he would read it. He stopped the 
forcing us back by the police officers. And we were allowed to stand about, I don't know, maybe 200, 300 feet from the extraction that was taking place. So from a distance, we could see the coloration of my brother's jacket and the other person in the tripod. And they started cutting the legs off one by one. We were sitting in a circle and all of a sudden we hear this cracking and someone goes, oh my God. And my heart jumps into my throat and I jump up because my younger brother by choice is in the tripod but is actively having his life put in danger by the RCMP officers who are cutting him out of the tripod. And it's really important to jump back into a position of perspective with all of this. If you're, if you're in the position where you are thinking, well, a 16 year old shouldn't be there as an older brother or as a parental figure, it's the responsibility of other people to ensure that doesn't happen. It's the responsibility of humanity to ensure we don't go fucking extinct, dude. Small actions make a big difference. And a 16-year-old choosing to be courageous enough to put his life in danger in order to protect the future of life on Earth, that is incredibly valiant, courageous. Regardless... The individuals who are funded billions of dollars annually and are trained extensively to uphold the well-being and safety of the general public at all costs. It is the responsibility of these individuals to not make stupid decisions that put lives in danger unnecessarily. So we're sitting in the circle, we hear the cracking, and the tripod shifts violently to the right by about four feet. And... Then it settles, and we're all on our feet now, just watching, waiting. There's a lot of tension between us and the RCMP line. And then it calms down a little bit, and we settle back into conversation. And as a group, we're talking about the things that we're most grateful for. And then, without much warning, the tripod shifts again. And this time it doesn't stop and it falls and I just see the shape of my brother tumble through the air and hit the ground. And in the video that was shared, it looks like he died. It looks like he just falls out of the tripod from about 15, 16 feet in the air, head first, falls on his neck. If he wasn't so agile, because he flipped midair and somehow landed on his feet, he's a skateboarder, he's always been really into gymnastics and movement, he's very connected with his body. In the video, he is plummeting head first and he just spins, lands on his feet. And we didn't know if he had suffered um, spinal compression or micro fractures. He doesn't have any back pain or knee pain or joint pain today, but for a while we were pretty concerned. And uh, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that he was alive or dead. I, I didn't know if he was going to end up in the hospital paralyzed. And... As soon as I see him fall, the line surges forward and we're face to face with the RCMP officers. Officers that have been violent toward our friends, officers that have engaged in egregious actions, actively pepper spraying people in the face. There was one woman who was pepper sprayed in the vagina. 
just ridiculous behavior. Officers that have kicked and hit our friends with their knees, who have swung them around, pushed elderly individuals into the bushes and the forest, have just been fucking awful human beings, subjectively. But we've come to know them. We've seen them at almost every major action and arrest, and some of them seem very uncomfortable with the position that they're in. And we're standing across from them, and there's this one officer that had been aggravating me for a while. He kept asking me questions about my brother, kept making snide comments about how if I was really responsible, I wouldn't have let him go up there in the first place. And I'm like, dude, it's not my choice. He's an autonomous individual. I'm here to support him, make sure that he's as safe as possible. It's your responsibility to do that too, except you're legally bound to it. He's a minor, yes. I'm his legal guardian, yes. But he's still capable of making his own decisions effectively. I'm here to support that. And when my brother fell, I'm holding back tears. This officer looks at me in the eyes and says, so if he ends up going to the emergency room, do you still want to go with him? And in that moment, I realized I did not care about this authoritarian position that this man was in. He felt a lot of power and significance, understandable because he's trained to. And I spoke my mind. I said, what the fuck do you think? Of course, I do. I had been speaking about the ecosystem, hoping that I could garner some human-to-human contact with these people. And I'd come to recognize that being in the position as an RCMP officer, if you disobey an order, that could mean a court order, that could mean jail time for you, You're essentially disobeying the queen when you disobey an order. And I had conversations with multiple officers, one of them who said the only instance in which I would consider disobeying an order would be if I were told that I had to kill somebody. Because by disobeying an order, I'm putting my life in jeopardy and therefore I'm putting my family's life in jeopardy. I may never get a job again because of the the power and the significance of the RCMP as an institution. Essentially, in order for one officer to refuse an order, to effectively encourage the entire institution to change, every single officer would have to stand up and refuse the same order. You would need an internal revolution to the the scale that we have not seen before. And so most officers are looking at something like Ferry Creek and saying, okay, I'm only going to be here for a couple of weeks and then I'm going to go somewhere else or I'm just going to focus on the the pleasant things here. I'm going to focus on the fact that I'm in in the woods. I get to hike every day. That's really cool. I get to be in this environment that I just really love. Wow, the air is so clean and pure here. I get to see these big trees. That's really cool. And while I'm here, I'm just going to do my job because if I refuse to, that's a problem. And I've been ordered to be here and it's only temporary. Or the officers that are not engaging in egregious activity, many of them said, we just continue to return so that we can hold other officers accountable. Because there are a lot of officers that are using this as an opportunity to get their anger and rage out, as most human beings will. We're here to try and prevent that as much as we can. 
And regardless of the reasoning, the meaning, essentially what they're saying is they feel like they're in a vice grip of morality. Where they cannot actively refuse like so many people say they should because of the ramifications that would have that we cannot even begin to understand. When my brother fell, that was a terrifying moment, and that fueled my conviction to remain at the blockade to continue pushing forward. When I left the blockade, after my brother fell, I was walking away from the front line, and I turned back and I screamed, well, shouted, I thought it sounded powerful, that I was going to return and I was going to bring as many fucking people as possible. And I ended up doing that. But... Two months later, I'm walking around the blockade and I just realize I can't, I can't push anymore. I can't contribute anymore. And that felt terrible, but I grabbed my stuff and I carried it over to um, the bus of my, uh, my close friend and went inside and she was there and I was just so exhausted and so she allowed me to to sleep on her bed for a few hours and when i woke up she said i've arranged a ride to go back to victoria she had to leave for a while and she thought i should go with her so i had a couple of hours to figure my things out and pack stuff up and get ready to leave and i knew in that moment that if I chose to leave the blockade, I would not be returning in any capacity other than short-term support. And between then and now, I've returned once. I've gone back to the blockade to visit once, just before Christmas. Just after Christmas, actually. And as I was thinking through the, the decision, I realized, coming back to that question... That grand question of why am I here and what is my purpose and meaning, I realized we don't need more people focused on taking direct action. Like, of, of, of course we do. What I'm trying to say is we need more people who feel the draw, the gravitational force toward thinking deeply questioning reality at a fundamental level, following the why rabbit down the rabbit hole of trying to understand systems and understand momentum and identify valuable and real paths forward that will actually propel us into the future that we desire. Effectively, individuals who are focused on what I call evolution strategy, picking apart and parsing all of the data that exists in order to identify, to synthesize new solutions, apply the 80-20 principle to human civilization, and build a plan to get us the fuck out of here. An analogy that I use in other episodes is individuals paddling in a boat. Right now, there are so many people that are putting so much energy and effort and time into this fervent process of paddling as hard as they possibly can. And we're all in this large boat and we're just spinning in circles. We're churning up the water. There's very little coordination. We're putting so much energy and effort into so many valuable things. 
but we're contradicting each other. We're moving around in ways that don't make sense. And while we are actively spinning in circles and getting nowhere, we haven't untied the boat. We haven't identified where we want to go. And very few people are focused on bringing all of it together. And in that moment, I realized that is what I am here for. I am here to identify solutions at a macro scale and then to implement them and motivate people to engage in this process of microevolution so that we can start building momentum. And it was in that moment that I realized that my time at the Ferry Creek Blockade was over. So I packed up my stuff. I said goodbye to people. It was emotional, but most people were too distracted to really realize what was going on. I slept for a while longer, sang Adele for 15 minutes with my friend, just blasting, screaming at the top of my lungs. I said fire to the rain. Hello, it's me. All of these classic songs that I grew up with that I absolutely loved. And then the time came around to leave. I got into this small truck and we started driving toward Victoria. And for the first two days that I was here, um, I had no idea what I was going to do. My friend was leaving back to Montreal to the airport the next morning. So I stayed in the hotel with her and uh, a couple other people. And then in the morning, I hadn't set up a plan. I hadn't communicated with them what was going on. I had this, this sort of expectation that I'd be able to get a ride to wherever I may need it. And we walked out of the hotel. They all got in the car and they said goodbye and they left. And then I'm just standing there after three and a half months of dedicating my life toward the blockade, acting as this almost a planet orbiting around the sun of Fairy Creek. And now it's almost as if through some gravitational decision, I have set my own path and I'm now this satellite just floating in space. I've left, I've left the sun behind and now I'm seeking almost to become my own source of, of heat and light and energy. And then I, I'm just, I'm alone. And it, it, it was this moment of just utter shock physically when you're moving so rapidly, almost like whiplash, you put on the brakes and your head just flips in the the direction that you're heading in and you pull back and there's that stunned momentary silence stillness just like just being dazed what what the hell is going on and i sit i sit down i went back into the lobby and i sat down on a chair and i I just sat with it and it took me a little while to start sorting a plan out. I messaged my mom and a couple of other people and I said, I've left the Ferry Creek blockade and I, I won't be returning. And I, I don't know what direction my life is heading in now, but this is the decision that I'm making. Um, I'm happy with it. I just don't know what I'm going to be doing. So please don't expect me to communicate too much in the next few days because I have a lot to figure out. And it took me a while to figure out what was going on. It took me a while to sort out my 
my thoughts and my ideas, I realized after I left the blockade that I, I had lost so much weight and I felt super unhealthy and I had no idea where I was going to go and live, but I realized the first thing I need to focus on is physical and psychological rehabilitation because like I have dedicated everything toward the blockade. I was on uh, EI, employment insurance at the time, so I didn't have to worry too much about money, but I did know that I had a limited period of time until that expired and ran out and I had to figure something out. But my primary focus was just physical, mental, emotional, and identifying like, what am I, what am I doing? I found a place to stay for a couple of nights and then I found another place to stay after that for about a week and a half. And approximately two and a half weeks later, I found the room that I'm living in currently in Esquimalt, just, uh, just west of Victoria, British Columbia. And everything has changed. In the last four months, five months, six months since I left the blockade, um, I have, I have found momentum. I have settled back into myself and I am so excited <laughs> about the path moving forward. It's going to be unpredictable and unfamiliar and uncertain and terrifying and exhilarating and empowering. And quick recap of, of the last few months. But before I get there, I just want to say there, there, there are two states that human beings can live in that I've identified as being relevant and necessary. And this is a sort of a spectrum, if you will, or a loop. The individuals that have set the standard for the world that we live in today, that have created the infrastructure that we look to, that have designed and built the products and the systems that have changed absolutely everything. I'm talking Thomas Edison and Galileo and Isaac Newton and Einstein and Malala Yousafzai and all of the women involved in the rights movements that led to the liberation and access of equity, women's rights, the individuals that have spearheaded the civil rights movement and Black Lives Matter and the climate movement that have actively shaped and transformed and shifted the reality that we collectively experience, the only thing separating those people and you are the conviction that they feel the curiosity that they have, the clarity in their vision, and their courage to move forward. When I left the blockade, I didn't feel much conviction. I had very little clarity. I was relatively curious, but I was pretty depleted energetically, and my courage was definitely lacking. In the last few months, I have experienced a lot. I started a relationship, ended a relationship with the person that I met at the blockade when I first went there and had beautiful experiences and adventures and I'm so grateful for them. We will forever be very close friends, but decided that both of us had different life trajectories and that required her moving back to Montreal and me continuing to do what I'm doing. I signed up for a program called Change the World Model United Nations and took a plane to New York City 
in March to participate in this program where we were assigned to be delegates for countries, random assignment. I ended up getting the United Arab Emirates and we were assigned to councils. I was part of Security Council 1 out of three total security councils in the overall um, Modern United Nations event. And the program overall was really disappointing. Um, it was kind of just a, a, a money, I don't know, a, a cash cow, I guess is the term that so many people use. I don't think that's the intention of the program directors when they originally founded it, but there was so much disrespect and poor communication toward the individuals that were participating, youth from around the world, students, high school students and university students. And I won't go into great detail as I want to move forward with my life, but overall, it was very frustrating and disappointing. However, in the MUN, I had the opportunity to develop my communication skills further, to engage in difficult debate and conversation, to articulate strategy in order to resolve very complex international problems, and was subject to an experience that allowed me to build an experiential understanding of the inner workings of international governance, which was incredibly enlightening. I had the opportunity to network and meet many other youth from around the world and made contacts that I will hold forever dear in my heart. But I think overall I was pretty intense, as I usually come off when I am passionate and engaged with something. So I feel like a lot of people were a bit overwhelmed by me. I ended up winning. The uh, Honorable Mention Award, not necessarily for my active participation in the MUN. Um, I didn't prepare at all. I just spoke with conviction and I spoke a lot. And as a result of my engagement, I was recognized. The experience overall was really empowering. I had the opportunity to speak directly with the executive director of the program and the CEO and explain why it's not okay to take advantage of children, essentially, for financial reasons, promptly ignored and explained away in a very condescending manner, as the experience of most people was but it provided the opportunity to speak with conviction in the face of authority in a way that I had never experienced before, to articulate myself, to take and hold space in order to attempt to seek justice and resolution. And that was really cool. I got to experience New York City, which was astounding, to walk the streets and witness the general insanity of the city. And a quick comment on urban settings. If a city is not self-sustaining, then it's completely dependent on external import. And the consequence of this is a, depending on the demographic and the size of the city, New York proper being 21 and a half million people, roughly, based on 2018 census data, and New York itself being around 8.4 million as a result of the size of the city, people are so displaced from the impacts of their consumption patterns. And being vegan was really difficult in New York for the first three days. I was essentially surviving off of New York style replica food, where it was like beyond meat with vegan cheese melted into it inside of bread, <laughs> essentially. And vegetables were very difficult to come by. 
the uh, energy and atmosphere of New York was astounding. I now understand why people call it the city that never sleeps. I got to go to Broadway, which is a magical experience. I went and watched Harry Potter, The Cursed Child with some very close friends, and it was life-changing to witness the stories and the way that everything was expressed and articulated, the special effects and all of the other uh, just ongoings of of the the event. It was so cool to witness. And then walking out of Broadway at around 11.45 p.m. into Times Square, it felt like walking out into the midday sun. It was so bright and noisy and dense. The skyscrapers just shoot off into, into the sky and you feel so small, surrounded by hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people, super late at night. I walked away from New York after witnessing the the structure and the design of the city going up into the Empire State Building and looking over everything and seeing the disparity of greenery versus cement. It is literally a concrete jungle. Seeing the, the pollution in the waterways and just recognizing the impact that human beings have. And my my ultimate takeaway from being in New York and being in most of the other cities that I went to was the incredible unsustainability of all of it, obviously, but more so the impact that it has on human human beings. And I have an operating thesis at this point that in any urban setting, the majority of human beings are going to be overwhelmed and actively overly stimulated, and as a consequence, are basically on the verge of collapse in every waking moment, only carried forward by supplementation and the momentum that is generated generated around them. A quick aside, two days ago, I was feeling very overwhelmed. I was recording a podcast episode and editing the content, and it just wasn't going super well. I was having digital issues, and I was hungry and tired. I hadn't eaten yet. It was around 11.45 a.m., so I went downstairs and I ate some food and then I had just, I, I had this urge to go outside. So I put aside all of my tasks and concerns and I went and I sat in the park near my house. It was pretty windy and the ocean was beautiful, but it was relatively cold. So I found a little corner in the park, a pathway that went up into the woods, into the bushes. And I sat on this open space with the sun shining on me behind a, a, se- a section of trees so that I was out of the wind. And I just had this overwhelming urge to to put my hand into the soil. And then I grabbed a handful of soil and I lifted up to my face and I just started inhaling deeply the scent of the soil. And it was so calming and peaceful. And the the scent of the the earth, this just incredible depth and rich smell of life in the soil. I I don't even know how to describe it. This rich and kind of sharp, sweet, sort of acrid, it smelled like minerals and bacteria and just, it smelled alive. And I just put it up to my face and just inhaled and exhaled for five minutes or so. Depending on Whether you do this in your life and what soil you grab, the scent will be slightly different. I had grabbed soil that was just above some wild ginger root 
And so there was also the, the sharp, spicy scent of, of this ginger mixed in. And it is a thought that has occurred to me quite often in the last few years. Humanity has become so displaced from our roots biologically. We evolved in environments where we walked around barefoot and were constantly connected to the earth where we were always interacting with and engaging with life outside of, of human life and the pets that we choose to keep in our locale, not necessarily by choice, but by necessity. There was this constant interaction with the world around us. And as a consequence, hundreds of millions of years ago, organisms, mammals specifically, outsourced the digestive process to bacteria. Your entire digestion, breakdown, absorption of food and nutrients is dependent on the diversity of microbes existing and, and living within your gut microbiome. The majority of your volume cellularly, genetically as a human being, is non-human life. It's bacteria, viruses that exists within you and are a part of you, the, the human body, this construct that we look at as identifying as being human is a complex combination at the fundamental level of subatomic particles, energy that has accumulated and organized itself into the form of atoms that has collected and congregated into molecules, into organisms, into organs, and these systems that interact with each other and have formed this cohesive synergistic relationship in order to eventually realize you. You have this collective identity, you have this individual identity, and it's incredible to look at, observe, and experience being human, to sit down and think about all of the moving pieces that are you. We evolved in these environments that enrich and empower our understanding of self and our well-being overall, and we've separated ourselves so much from those environments. And as a, as a result, we try and outsource, we try and consume and take these topicals and these nutrient supplements that hopefully will fill that gap that is missing from interaction with and this deep relationship with the environment, the ecology that we evolved within and alongside. If you get a chance, I highly recommend that you take the opportunity to go into a garden or go into a forest, ideally somewhere that has more than 12 to 15 different plants growing in and around it, somewhere that looks relatively lush, reach down into the soil and without disrupting life too much, just pick up a handful and smell it. And take moments to be with that experience, to, to pick up the scent, to try and identify what minerals or molecules or organisms, plants am I smelling right now? And you will be surprised at how quickly it calms down the nervous system, brings you back into the moment. If you take a child, for example, if you take a screaming child, let's take, imagine you're walking through Target or Walmart or Costco or just a grocery store somewhere and there's this kid in a stroller or walking beside their mom just screaming like they're about to die. If you were to take that kid and put them into a garden, a permaculture garden, a food forest, it's lush and diverse, 
with butterflies and many different colors and scents in the air with fruit that they can pick off of the trees and worms that they can bend down onto the ground and watch ants crawling across leaves. Probably within 15 seconds, that kid would go from thinking their life was over to being fascinated with the world around them, to opening up this realm of curiosity and just observing with fascination at the complex, beautiful diversity that they're surrounded by. My takeaway from New York was a recognition that none of this exists. And just being there for a few days, sleeping a few hours a night, eating very underwhelming foods, being surrounded by noise and chaos, constantly having something to do, constantly moving. One of the initial questions I asked was, how could people live here? How could you sustain this? It's like, it's utter insanity. It, it feels like I'm splitting apart, fragmenting as an individual. And as a result, I have this desire to just go out and consume, to, to fill in that internal void as it grows bigger with external story and narrative and engagement with other people, essentially to spend time around other people who are in the same state, who can acknowledge what I'm going through and say, no, 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 it's okay. Don't look at that. Don't focus on that. After New York, I went to Montreal for a while. I got exposure to that environment. And then I went to Quebec City and explored around there. And then I did a road trip back across Canada with two friends. And we visited every major city in each province up until Alberta, Calgary. And that was really eye-opening and enlightening. Walking around and recognizing the systems that humanity has put into place. From childhood, I have believed with deep conviction that everything needs to change. And at some point, I lost that and I started to feel doubt in myself. And until I took this trip and had this experience, I didn't realize how on the mark I was. People have told me, yeah, everything needs to change, but very few people seem to be willing to put the work and time into figuring out how. And I've come to conclude that that is because... We either feel alone in our assumptions or we feel far too small and incapable of starting or we never know where to start at all. The alternative to that is choosing apathy, choosing pessimism, choosing ignorance or being ignorant without realizing it. And there's one other choice that we can make to recognize, yes, we are small and then focus on building, to focus on creating experiences and opportunities that scale, that build momentum and generate energy to guarantee potential outcomes, to recognize we're not capable of changing the world on our own. We need to engage with others in order to make beautiful things possible. But first of all, we need to engage with ourselves to change our opportunity and accessibility of that possibility to realize that it exists and then to adjust our personal framework in order to make it accessible and to continue moving in that direction. Conviction didn't really settle in until after the drive where I had the opportunity to discuss a lot of things with my friends that I hadn't exposed to people before. My perspectives on redesigning human civilization and at what scale and magnitude my thoughts usually orbit. And they were shocked and surprised, but engaged in really meaningful and relevant ways that helped to propel my journey forward in thinking through big problems and big opportunities. It wasn't really until flying from Calgary, Alberta back to Victoria that the conviction really started to settle in. I have never 
made a flight of that distance and I've never been able to see things from above in that way. As we left the Calgary airport and started to gain elevation, I was glued to the window the entire time, either watching or recording or doing both. And the landscape started to flatten out as we flew up. And the roads started to look more like arteries and veins, this network, and then this grid-like pattern. And I, it was almost funny to look at this environment that was all rounded edges. And then human systems built into these boxes and squares, these rectangles. And at a, at a really high level, it looks like a circuit board to some degree. Just straight lines moving in every direction, very contradictory to the, the platform that we're working on, which is the Earth. And then some of these roads, as we gained more elevation, realized we're very, very fragile as a species. There were highways that were plowed, and you could tell. There were cars that were moving through, these really small objects, barely visible, and other roads where you could see the line, the indentation in the snow, but it was just too much to plow them, to keep them maintained, and so they were covered in snow. And as we zoomed up, civilization started to look smaller and smaller. Around 15,000 feet, I recognized simultaneously humanity is just clinging on to the surface of this planet. We have created these structures and these cities, these societies that are just holding on for dear life. At any point in time, they could be wiped out. We could destroy ourselves due to overcomplexity and just misinterpretation, miscommunication, misunderstanding internally. But at the same time, as we got higher and higher at around 20,000 feet, I started noticing the impact that we have on ecosystems. On one hand, we design these road networks that wind and from a height look like these rivers just lapping back across, looping around in these squiggly lines. And it makes very little sense because trying to get from point A to point B, it would make far more sense if we could go in a straight line, but we don't have the technology yet to bore tunnels under the earth to develop high-speed hyperloop or maglev transport systems where we can go from one side of Canada to the other in a few hours, we have to work with and navigate the terrain that exists. And we try and contradict this in as many opportunities as we have, but for the most part, we are still subject to the laws of the world around us. And at the same time, we have broken so many of these laws. Looking at the placement of cities, the vast majority of them built in floodplains. Looking at the sediment buildup around the outskirts of cities, recognizing this used to be a lake bed or this used to be a river and it has been dammed or it has completely dried out. The disparity between these zones that human beings haven't been able to touch for a very long time nestled within valleys, inaccessible due to the lack of roads, and the areas that we have developed which look desertified. They look incredibly undesirable to be. I would much prefer walking through the forests that are lush and green than walking through the streets of cities like Kelowna or even Vancouver and Victoria sometimes. Looking at the destructive footprint that humanity has created helps to create this just growing sense of agency within me 
so few people are talking about this and even fewer are doing something about it that at least actions that make sense. Far, far too much of our effort is put toward these band-aid solutions on temporary problems and that is why human civilization is the way that it is. Our foundation is broken not because it was designed to be that way, simply because it was not designed intentionally. There are cracks and fractures that have built up over time that we simply haven't looked at because we're too busy adding on new layers to what already exists. It's absolute insanity. Assuming that we could continue in this fervent journey, this pursuit of growth without really defining what that means. And so, as I'm flying over top of these environments at 24,000 feet, looking down and seeing the cities, the outskirts of the cities dry and dilapidated, this environment that is essentially going to be a desert in 15 years from now, completely uninhabitable to the majority of life forms. Looking at the mountain ranges around and the clear cuts, the fact that the watersheds that have been preventing flood from happening are now destroyed. These intact ecosystems that used to absorb water, filter, and process it, they're now gone. So with mass snowfall and melt, with mass rain, mudslides are the inevitable consequence. And they will wipe out all of these regions, these urban centers and sectors. As we flew across Vancouver, looking down at Vancouver and Richmond and Delta and Surrey and these surrounding areas, this mass metropolis of over 6 million people, it was amazing to look down and realize just how destructive it all is. Vancouver City is claimed, if you look it up on Google, to be one of the top five in most lists, one of the top five greenest cities in the world. But that data is based on observation of downtown Vancouver connected to Stanley Park. These two areas that kind of cancel each other out, depending on what you're measuring, but the rest of Vancouver itself, Delta, Richmond, Surrey, Abbotsford, all of these regions, none of that is taken into consideration. And looking at it from above, it is so obvious the footprint that it has, this gray cement, this sprawling suburbs, the road networks, all of it just absorbing heat, reflecting and radiating it, this pocket on the earth out of tens of thousands of cities that exist, creating mass pollution. Looking down at the riverway leading into the ocean, it was amazing to see the ocean and the river and to see the disparity in color. To look at the ocean, this deep blue, and then to look at what, what seemed like algae blooms or an oil spill just coming out of the land into this body of water. You have this deep blue and then this murky kind of avocado gray that is the river and and i recognized this point in the river all the way up until the rockies this point in the river is where all of the water comes out from that from that section of land so every single 
pollutant, every piece of plastic, every pharmaceutical product, every single piece of sewage that goes unfiltered, all of the debris and dirt and accumulation of pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers that end up in the rivers, this is where they exit. And it was in that moment that I made the decision, I will never again swim in water, a body of water that is near a large population of people or is in a section, a channel of water that could absorb and accumulate the pollutants and and just things that people throw out, the consequence of human civilization that inevitably seeps into the waterways. I will never again enter into a body of water because of what I saw. It was absolutely disgusting and terrifying. We flew over the water, over the ocean, to Victoria, Vancouver Island, and I got to see the clear cuts from above. And I got to see just the, the disparity, the, the ridiculous, nonsensical design and structure that humanity has created. And we settled into the Victoria airport, and I had been writing and just watching and recording out the window. Settled into Victoria, and I felt this sense of conviction and confidence and clarity that I had not felt before. At least for a very long time, and not to the degree that I did now. Over the last few months, I had gone to Ferry Creek. I had experienced incredible opportunities for growth. I developed immensely as a human being, come to understand the legal and environmental systems to greater depths than I ever had before. Then I went to New York and I had the opportunity to discover myself, to speak passionately, to debate, to develop communication skills. I got to experience New York and human civilization to a greater degree than I had before and I was left both disappointed in the fact that my perspective landed true but also significantly more empowered because I now understood my belief that things have to change is solid, it is secure, it is meaningful and relevant. And on the path back, driving across Canada, I got to have conversations and share perspectives, thoughts and ideas that I hadn't expressed to the world before, and I got feedback. On one hand, my friends saying, this is a great idea, we really support this. And on the other hand, them saying, this would change everything. And I would actively fight against you in order to prevent this from happening. And I realized in order to express what my beliefs, ideas, dreams, and perspectives mean in shaping human civilization, in order to truly provide somebody an opportunity to understand what my intentions are, I need to focus on creating experiences so that they can walk into a space and come out on the other side being able to see the potential that I see. That was so helpful. And then flying across from Alberta to Victoria, that was the nail in the coffin, the cherry on top of the cake, where I realized all of my convictions hold true. And I recognized I need to change everything in my life. I need to end the relationship I'm in. I need to dive back into this work and I need to focus foremost on sharing my thoughts with the world and beginning to build so that people can see the potential that I see, feel the opportunity that I feel, and then engage in opening those doors and walking through. 
So in the past year, so much has happened. And moving forward, the progress, the momentum will continue building at an exponential rate. And I want to bring you guys on this journey. I'm ready to settle into myself, to start stepping into this field of infinite potential, to face fears and recognize that they only exist to signal that growth is on the horizon. And along this journey, as I focus on living a legacy, I want to leave a trail so that you guys can walk with me. I want to blaze a trail and leave the blueprint behind so you can either choose to take the steps I have to come to the realizations I have, to just watch from a distance, observe, and keep up with the conversation, or to just recognize that you don't have to live by the standards and stories that were set by those around you, that were given to you without your permission when you were young and did not have the capacity to recognize who you were or to make that choice, the conviction to say no, you are able, you are capable to actively redesign everything, your perception, your identity, and ultimately if you do that, your reality will shift. I want the Redefining Human podcast to be a catalyst for change, to light the fuel that you need in order to move forward in the direction of understanding who you are and stepping into that as fully as possible. So in this episode, I wanted to give you an update on everything that has happened in the last year, where I've been, what I've done, and where I am today, and give you an understanding of what my intentions are moving forward. I will continue to release episodes frequently, um, I'm planning to do it on a weekly basis for now, moving forward. A lot of things are changing in my life in the next few weeks, and I want to focus on two primary vectors of communication. The first one being this format, where I talk to you directly, I communicate um, off the top of my head, or I prepare some sort of script in order to break down complex narratives and ideas. A one-to-one -one communication where I can connect with you and share in real time the synthesis that is going on in my mind, the actions and strategies that I'm implementing and deploying in my life, and the projects that I'm working on in order to try and change the world. And the second is bringing on professionals to talk about specific subjects, to break down in scientific or philosophical or experiential detail the processes by which we can go about this practice of redefining what it means to be human. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm very, very excited. And in ending this episode, I want to leave a message for you. Reiterating, the only thing separating you from the people that have changed the world and have set the stage for human experience, conviction, curiosity, clarity, and courage. You can develop conviction by going out and experiencing the world and recognizing that your beliefs hold true. And I recommend and I request that you actively test your assumptions against reality to see what bias you might be holding that has developed those beliefs in the first place. In releasing your bias, if you feel conviction that things need to change, that injustice needs to be pursued, that you have skills and abilities that you have not yet developed that you need to... You don't need the world's permission in order to follow through with it. 
to develop clarity, the most important thing that we can do is create space, distance from the noise where we can sit silently and observe, to work through the accumulated torture, trauma, perspectives, beliefs, and ideologies that we've picked up along the way, to look into that proverbial backpack and choose what to continue carrying with you down the trail, to choose to avoid picking up more nonsense and start using discernment to identify what is really important to you and relevant to the goal that you are setting in your life. Curiosity is vital to this process. And in order to awaken that, we need to surround ourselves with wonder. We need to focus not on thinking that we know everything, but instead on thinking that we can learn anything that we want. To look for the things that excite you, that awaken and invigorate your psyche. To seek out the opportunities where fear stands in your path. To thank it and to step into it, looking to learn and looking to grow. And courage. Courage is a capacity that exists within you at an infinite level of abundance. But the reason that you don't choose to change in the words of Alfred Adler are because you lack courage. I would argue against that and say you don't lack courage, you just don't access it as much as you need to, as much as you should or can. Courage is the ability to look at the unknown and to trust that regardless of what unfolds moving forward, you will be okay. If you fall flat on your face, if you slip, if the floor is pulled out from underneath you, to trust that you will land on your feet and you will learn, that you can get back up and continue moving forward. And the beautiful thing about taking action is, for the most part, it is reversible. If you decide to start a podcast and release information or perspective into the world, if you say something publicly, if you start a company, if you start a relationship or end one, for the most part, it is reversible. And if you decide that's not the path you want to walk down, you can choose to turn back around and choose a different direction to walk in. It is critically important in this moment in time that we recognize our potential as a species and we start stepping into it. Human civilization was created by a very small percentage of the 100 billion humans that have walked this planet before and beside us, but is sustained by the individuals, the 99.9% .9 of people who choose to live automatically and reactively, who choose not to recognize or never have the opportunity to learn that our actions are a choice. In the words of Viktor Frankl, from Man's Search for Meaning, his pivotal book, between stimulus and response, there is space. In that space is your power to choose your response. In that response lies your growth and your freedom. Human potential is virtually limitless. The only limitations in life are the ones that you create for yourself or accept from other people. Between stimulus and response, there is space. You can choose to take a deep breath and expand that space. You can choose to step into the position of the observer and identify what is holding me back to breathe through it, to choose to step into the fear, to choose to step away from regret, to avoid anticipating the future and instead imagine the possibility and be drawn forward by your inspiration. This is why I'm here. 
And this is what I will continue to do with this podcast. I want to live a life that I never have the opportunity to regret. I want to move forward with determination. My goal here is to redesign human civilization from the ground up to reimagine, reconfigure every single system that we have on this planet. To empower and encourage other people to recognize, pick up, and utilize the tools that are available and to put them into application in this collective process of individually, fervently, passionately, ecstatically, daily redefining what it means to be human. I'm looking forward to having you on this journey, and I'm very, very excited to be starting it up again. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Redefining Human. I'm so excited to be starting, to be moving forward, and I am so grateful that you're here to join me on this journey. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with friends, family, anybody that you think would be empowered by the message that it contains. Share widely, broadcast without fear. It helps a lot. Rate and review on the podcast platform that you're listening on, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, whatever you have turned to in order to access Redefining Human. And if you feel empowered by the content of this message today, or you want to support this podcast in reaching financial escape velocity, go to Redefining Human Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Redefining Human and sign up as a monthly contributor. $5 a month, $10, $15 a month makes a massive, massive difference to this podcast and will help to expand the message that I'm trying to express to the world. I hope you have an amazing day. See you next week in the next episode of the Redefining Human podcast. And until then, love you very much. Bye-bye.